open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel once again, and uh, chapter 5. Mark 5. Is there hope for desperate people? I mean real hope. The kind of hope that is outside of yourself. Because one of the most terrifying prospects is to know that you need help, that you need some kind of hope, and, and you look within and you find nothing. It's also terrifying to look around you and say, you know, the, the people who are near mean well, my friends, my family, but they don't have the capacity to do what needs to be done for me right now. It's even more terrifying when the people you turn to, whether it be family or friends, actually abandon you. Your, your condition, your need is so great, and maybe there have even been some personal consequences that, that have driven wedges between relationships or done something to fundamentally alter the nature of those relationships, and whereas you should enjoy the support of your family, your community, your neighborhood, your, your business, you're actually cut off from them. It deepens your sense of hopelessness and despair. And maybe some of you this morning say, you know, I'm not only hopeless, but actually feel like I'm rejected by the people who ought to be there for me. Cast out of a, a community or a family for whatever reason. And to further, to, to deepen this just a little more, there may be some of you who say there's something taking place right now that is, that is more than just a, a hopeless economic picture or a hopeless community picture. I mean, there's, there's like this darkness that has settled over my soul, and I don't fully understand it, but it's there. And sometimes even in the middle of the night when I wake up, I feel like there's something in the room with me that's just evil. Is there hope? The answer is yes. Not only is there hope for you, but there is an answer given in the passage before us that actually is an emphatic yes. Not just a maybe there is, maybe there's not, here's a little possibility to consider. It's an emphatic yes. And the emphatic yes is actually given in the person of Jesus, the Son of the Most High, as he is described in Mark 5. We're going to read it, and so I want you to follow along. And then we're going to pray and ask for God to help us because I'm mindful we were just singing, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins are many, his mercy is more. I mean, we need the truths of that text and this passage to come together in our hearts in a life-altering way. So you follow along. If you have your Bible open on your lap, then you read it. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, I'm going to put the words on the screen here uh, for you and you can follow along. But Mark 5, it's going to take us a couple of minutes because we're actually going to read 20 verses. It's the whole story. And then we're going to pray together. They, that is Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself or cutting himself with stones. 
When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, that is, Jesus was saying to this man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Pray with me, please. Our God and Father, as we read this story, we are overwhelmed again with the great power and authority of Jesus Christ. We are amazed by His mercy on a man that had been rejected for, for understandable reasons, a man who had been cast outside of the city, his community, a man who is a horrific picture, not just of demon possession, but of spiritual darkness, a man who is defiled and unclean in every way and been reduced to a most pitiful condition. But how thankful we are that we serve a great king who intentionally moves into regions just like this, that he may encounter people just like this and deliver them from their fears and the horror of a captive condition and spiritual oppression and darkness that will not end. Oh, Lord Jesus, how I pray that through your word and the testimony of this scripture, that you would work in the hearts of those who are with us today who feel a hopelessness, who feel as if darkness itself has invaded their soul, invaded their mind, perhaps even their home, and taken control, traumatizing and terrorizing them day by day. May they find in Jesus that great salvation and relief of, of comfort and help in their hopelessness. Only you, Lord Jesus, can deliver us from this kind of oppression. 
Only you have the power to forgive our sins and cast them into the depths of the sea as we were reading earlier. Only you, Lord Jesus, can make us to be people of peace, seated in your presence, calmed in heart, calmed in mind, forgiven, cleansed, transformed, clothed in your righteousness, the picture of peace. Only you can do that. Come now, please, and do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this story picks up where Mark 4 left off. I listened early this morning to Matt's message from last week and so appreciated the, the emphasis, the points that he put before us as a congregation calling us to, to see Jesus for who he is. And I was struck by the fact that the right kind of fear is actually what positions you to have the right kind of faith. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just come to you and say, hey, have more faith? He actually gives you reason to believe. And in the Gospels, he shows you the great power and authority that he, as God, possesses. So whether it be calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee or entering a, a quite remarkable scenario as in Mark 5, he is showing us his great authority and power, and on the basis of what he reveals about himself, he calls us to believe. So faith for a true follower of Jesus is never this blind leap. There may be moments where you feel like you're stepping out onto nothing, but from God's vantage point, he's actually giving you real substance of the, underneath your faith. That's why Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's substance and evidence. So listen to this passage and, and work through this story with me with a view that your faith would grow as a result of seeing and knowing Jesus as he is. Now, notice several things with me from this passage. First of all, Jesus invades an unclean region. I use the term invade intentionally, trying to tie it back to Mark 3. Remember how when Jesus was being accused of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul or the authority of Satan himself, he refutes all of that and actually says, no man enters a strong house unless he's able to bind that strong man and then plunders his household. Well, that's actually what Jesus is doing, because back in Mark 3, the strong man clearly was the devil, and Jesus is the one entering the household or even the kingdom of the devil and plundering it. Well, he's really doing it. I appreciated the fact that in Matt's message last week, he brought out the fact that as they set sail across the Sea of Galilee, there were other boats. And knowing that Jesus' intention was to get to the other side for the very thing that we're studying and seeing this morning, I picture it in my mind, almost this little... This, this floating armada, as if the Lord Jesus is saying, we're on mission. We're going to go invade an unclean region. Now, why would we call it unclean? A few little clues that are here. First of all, the name of the region that comes at the end of this story is the, the Decapolis. That just means the 10 cities. Those 10 cities were under Roman control. They had been invaded and occupied many, many years before this. It was still under Roman control. So no committed Jew would desire to live in this place. And because of the Roman occupation and Roman control, it was considered an unclean region to the committed Jewish person. Furthermore, as we read in the story, they're keeping large herds of pigs. And we all know that if you're a committed Jew, you don't eat bacon. The Lord had not yet declared all foods to be clean at this point. 
So it's an unclean region because of who's there from the Jewish vantage point. It's an unclean region because of the commerce and trade that they're engaged in. I mean, a, a, a 2,000 uh, 2, pigs is no small pig operation. Furthermore, as Jesus encounters this man, he is demon-possessed. And it's not just one or two, as we read. It's a legion. Estimates ranging from four to 6,000. And, and I don't know that even when, even when the legion own up to who they are and how many they are, I don't know that the point is, is to put a precise number on it, but just to say there are a whole bunch of them. And isn't it interesting they describe themselves as a legion, as if they are an army, a, a military uh, gathering to oppose the work of Jesus. So he's invading an unclean region. One author writes, if the swine herds were supplying the Roman legions with pork, then the raising of unclean food for the detested Roman occupation was doubly offensive. Thus, Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations, all in an unclean Gentile territory. But none of that stops Jesus. And what I want you to be impressed with is that his love for people who are oppressed, who are hopeless, people who are ceremonially and spiritually defiled and unclean. His love is so strong and his mercy so great that he moves intentionally. He is not there by accident. He is there by design. Some of you wonder if Jesus loves you enough to come to you in your great need. This is the first of those, uh, a series of what I would describe as emphatic yeses. Well, as he invades this unclean territory, he engages an unclean man. This man is probably as unclean as any human being could be in every way. He's ceremonially unclean because he dwells among the dead. Look at verse 2. Out of the tombs. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. And you need to remember, as one commentator notes, that the sepulchers of the Jews were often caverns or were hewn artistically out of rocks or in the sides of hills in various forms and sizes, sometimes with several compartments. They were closed by a door or layer of stone, and the entrance was often decorated with ornaments and whitewashed. And that brings another uh, conversation that Jesus has with people later in, in the gospel to mind. But, but you can't think of a, a tidy graveyard, if I can put it that way, that we would be used to, where it's rows of stones neatly lined and, and flowers that have been left as family members or friends come at certain times to remember their loved one or their friend, family member who has passed from this life to the next. No, this would, this would look more like if you drove up into one of the canyons and you part, pulled over to the side and you just began to observe that there were caves that were naturally there that had been used as burial places and then other places where a, a tomb had actually been carved out of the rock. This would be the kind of place that any normal person would avoid. And furthermore, the scriptures tell us from the Old Testament that this was the kind of place that any committed Jewish person would avoid. According to Old Testament laws found in Numbers 19, contact with the dead polluted a person like this. 
In Numbers 19.14, we read his uncleanness is still on him unless he goes through some sort of ceremonial cleansing and washing that, that actually involves seven days of ritual observance. This person remained unclean. And Numbers 19 goes on to state very simply, if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly. Now, there's good reason to believe that this man is a a Gentile, he's not a Jew, but I just think it's important for us to understand the Jewish perspective on, on Jesus as a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi taking his Jewish disciples into a vicinity and a situation like this. So this is a man who's ceremonially unclean. Second of all, he's spiritually unclean. He's spiritually unclean because we know he is controlled by demonic spirits. This is a man whose physical life in tombs and caves is a reflection of the spiritual life of darkness and bondage that sin and the powers of darkness have brought him to. The Bible doesn't tell us how this man came to be demonized by thousands of spirits, but it is a terrifying prospect, isn't it? And may I just pause for a moment to say, don't minimize stories like these as if they're just for another time and another place. I think one of the mistakes that we make in our present-day culture is to think that somehow this kind of demonization is relegated to primitive cultures, third-world countries, if you will, in our day and age, or people who are superstitious and kind of invite that thing in. Listen, Ephesians 6 tells us that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and they are present in this valley. Some of you, no doubt, have encountered them. So don't ever minimize them. Don't, don't just act as if, oh, I must have just you know, made this up or concocted it. The spiritual realm is real, and it has arrayed itself against the Christ and against his gospel. He's spiritually unclean. He's also considered culturally unclean. He's beyond the control and understanding of the community. Look at verses 3 and 4. No one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. And then the testimony, no one had the strength to subdue him. He's a threat to the community. It's understandable, isn't it? A man of this kind of violence, a man who would bring this kind of terror in the community. I mean, my kids are a little older now, but I'm thinking if I were a parent of younger children, I wouldn't let my kids play in the street if this guy roamed the neighborhood. So while it's understandable the steps that they have taken, it is a pitiful, pitiable condition that his community has banished him. They view him as a threat. It's a kind of cultural uncleanness, if you will. But then look at verse 5. And I think this reveals something of what is going on in his soul and shows that he feels his personal uncleanness. Verse 5 tells us he was always crying out, and it uses a term that describes the inarticulate cries, cries that arise from fear, cries that arise from agony, cries that arise from some kind of pain or even self-abhorrence. Day after day, night after night, being aware of his agony, he cries and cries and cries. And then did you notice as we read through this portion, 
The English Standard Version uses the term bruising himself with stones. There are other English versions that use the word cutting. It's all indicative that he is inflicting pain on himself. You think about what is going on in a person's soul that they actually do themselves harm in that particular way. I read this week that a 2012 review of 52 self-injury studies from around the world found that approximately 18% of individuals had cut or otherwise deliberately injured themselves in their lifetime. That's almost one in five. Psychologists tell us that there are four primary reasons people cut themselves. Physical pain, they believe, will take away the emotional pain. Something to distract them from the real pain in their heart. Number two, people who cut are their own harshest critics. Sometimes it's out of a sense that I can never measure up. I can never be worthy of what the community I'm a part of thinks that I ought to, ought to be worthy of. Number three, cutting can be a way to stop feeling numb. Probably some of you have experienced the kind of pain that just leaves you numb and you reach a point where you say, I would just like to feel something, but I'm so numbed by the trauma or the difficulty or the, the great hurt of that bygone experience or a relationship that, that you want to do something to awaken your senses. The fourth reason given is that it's an alternative outlet for emotional pain. Now remember, this man is demon-possessed. So I, I don't want to say that this is just relegated to a psychological issue. And I'm not quoting that because I, I think that it gives us all the answers. And sadly, one of the things that psychology often does is just kind of explain some things, but doesn't really resolve it or heal it. And I pause and, and move our thoughts down this particular road just because of the culture we live in. Some of you have been right there, or you've got a loved one who is there. This is the kind of desperation this man feels. He longs to be set free, but he cannot find a path of escape. He does not see a way out. And if we could stand on the nearby hillsides and hear the shrieks and cries of this lost soul through one sleepless night after another, we would rightly conclude that evil itself has pushed its way to the surface, uh, maybe even through those, those very tombs and laid hold of his soul. He is a man most to be pitied. What hope is there for such tortured souls? What hope would there be for you on this day? And maybe you are among those 18 to 20% of the population on planet Earth who say, I hurt so much that it actually provides a little relief to cut myself or, or do some kind of, of bodily harm. Well, if you look at verse 7, the hope is identified, and it's a person. It's not just a strategy or some kind of psychological pathway forward. It's a person. 
Jesus, the Son of the Most High. Look at verse 6. When Jesus, uh, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Jesus has come to vanquish the unclean legion. But even more than that, he has come to rescue the man. Don't lose sight of that. We're going to talk about the legion for just a few minutes here. This is really important for us. In verses 6 and 7, it's clear that he is present to bring the legion into submission. The man runs and falls down before him. And the term fall down denotes prostrating oneself before another person. It's often an act of worship. Same terminology that's used in other places in the Bible. And then, it apparently is the legion who is talking, what have you to do with me? This, this legion is, is now on the defensive. They might want to array, their, array themselves against the Son of the Most High God and drive Him out of the region, but they're just not going to be able to do it. It's Jesus bringing this legion into submission. Here's the second thought. Jesus compels the legion to speak truth. Did you notice this in verse 7? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? For all the deception and lies that the powers of darkness bring against us, for all the deceiving that they seek to do, there are certain moments where they cannot help themselves but to speak the truth, and this is one of them. Now, in Mark's gospel, this is one of several key moments of witness where the, where the divinity of Jesus Christ is clearly set before us. And you could mark this and maybe even highlight it. Uh, we're going to get to some other ones, and the last one will be the Roman centurion. So in the big picture of Mark's gospel, this is a critical moment of identity if you're asking the question, who is this Jesus? Well, the demonic forces know exactly who he is. He's the son of the Most High. And as one author notes, in Judaism, Most High God is an epithet emphasizing the transcendence and exaltation of Israel's God over pagan gods or goddesses or rival powers. So they are setting him in a category of his own. He's not one of many sons of the Most High. He is the unique son of the Most High. It's another reason that I don't believe Jesus could ever be the spirit brother of Satan. He, he is in a category all of his own. The son of the Most High. And these demons who are cohorts of the devil himself, who's the great demon, know that they are in the presence of one who is infinitely superior to him, to them. Here's a third thought. Jesus commands the legion to do his will. They say, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Why would they be worried about Jesus coming to actually torment them? <coughs> it's interesting that the demons make this appeal. And they're not appealing to the authority of Beelzebul or Satan, but to God Most High. And clearly they know that his exorcism that is underway has never been by the power of Satan, as the scribes were suggesting. And, and notice what Mark says, for he was saying to him, come out of the man. It, it seems to indicate that he was giving the, the command repeatedly. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And they have no option but to obey. 
They're not even able to resist the command to come out. The question for them and the issue at stake is, we're going to come out, where are you going to send us? And that's what, if you, if you compare this account to Matthew's gospel, and the, because he includes the same story, and Luke's gospel, you will find out that their specific concern is that Jesus had come to torment them by sending them into the abyss. That's the term that Luke uses. Do not send us into the abyss. What is the abyss? Revelation 20 describes for us a scene at the end of the age, and John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And the term that's being translated as the pit is the same idea in this passage of the abyss. Is it a compartment of hell? Is it just hell itself? Not specifically sure, but it is a place of God's judgment and confinement. It is a place where He will torment demonic creatures just like these. And they know it's their destiny. And their worst fear is that at this moment, Jesus has come not simply to cast them out of the man, but actually to execute that final judgment and send them to a place that they know will be horrific. This Jesus is sovereign over the powers of darkness. Jesus has already determined that great day of judgment and the great sentence that will be passed down upon all workers of darkness. They know that they will be tortured forever, and they're begging him not to send them there at this moment. Well, the Lord is not done with them. Before he completes that work, he actually calls the legion to identify itself. Look at verse 9. He commands them. What is your name? And they reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. The significance of the name Legion does not, as I said earlier, focus on an actual number. We know from Rome's military construct that a Roman Legion uh, was typically about 6,000. It could be as few as 4,000. That number would stand in contrast to the number of pigs that we're about to read in verse 13 of 2,000, but the point is there are a whole bunch of them. And what's clear to us is that Jesus Christ is Lord over this legion. They must submit to him. And so in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, the description is of Jesus sending the legion into the pigs. Isn't it interesting? He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Maybe that's because they know it, that would mean they have to go to the abyss. But verse 12, it's their request. Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. There could be fewer things that come to mind that would be as distasteful or disgusting to a Jewish reader than the thought of indwelling a pig. But you know, to these demons, that's preferable to being sent to the abyss. I've heard people say through the years, you know, I really don't want to go to heaven, especially if none of my friends are going to be there. I'd rather just go to hell and be with the people I know and love. They have no idea what they are saying. 
This is a little window of insight that demons who know exactly what the abyss and hell are all about would say, I'd rather make my living or dwelling place a pig than the abyss. And my friend, if you have some notion of hell as just kind of a dark place where a guy in a red suit runs around and pokes you with a pitchfork once in a while, and you know it may not be the nicest place in the universe, but because you think you will be there with your friends or family members or others that you can continue some kind of social life or party, you are sorely mistaken. It is a place of torment, and it never ends. So Jesus sends the legion into the pigs. Verse 13 says, he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now stop here for a moment and imagine that you are the man who's been possessed and oppressed by thousands of demons for who knows how long. And, and, and you're feeling that sense of cleansing, spiritual release and deliverance that's happening. And, and you, we don't know what they could see at that particular point, but at least this much, he recognizes that when those pigs begin to stampede, they actually have taken up uh, residency inside those unclean animals, and they begin to stampede headlong, rushing into the sea where they are drowned, never to return. And he's standing there watching this. What, what a powerful visual picture of all of that uncleanness being removed from him, never to return. That's part of the reason that as Kevin and I were talking and the Matt was even reading a portion of scripture that talks about God casting our sins into the sea, the depths of the sea, this is a little visual aid for us. Some of you feel like you've been traumatized for a long time, just cannot get rid of a particular besetting sin or sins wondering if there's ever hope for you, here's the one who has power to deliver you fully. And when God casts your sins into the depths of the sea, he does so with a view that they would never return. So if God has forgiven you, let them go. I'm so glad. Let me just pause on this for a moment. We've talked about this before, but I just want to insert this. Sometimes people will say, well, you need to forgive and forget. You know, you can forgive. It's pretty much impossible to forget. But the Bible doesn't actually tell us, tell us that God forgets our sins. What it actually says is he doesn't remember our sins against us, and there is a difference. Forgetting means that, like, the memory bank is erased we're not God that we don't know everything but you can't be God and forget things he doesn't scrub the memory bank as if to say oh I have no knowledge of that actually what it means is that he closes the file so to speak puts it in the cabinet and locks it never to access it again that's what he's saying when he says your sins I will remember no more He's not going there. They're buried so deep, the access is gone. 
I know some of you struggle with your sins. Your past is ugly to you and it's dark and occasionally the adversary wants to take you back down that path or even your own soul wants to go and return. But God is not the one who's leading you back to those things. Once you've confessed them and forsaken them and said, please forgive me, he does it. File is closed, locked away. And so he would say to you, leave it in the sea. The man didn't run down the bank and say, I want to keep at least one of these pigs. That's absurd, isn't it? No, he's saying, I want to be done with those demons. That's the kind of deliverance Jesus brings. He will again have compassion on us, Micah 7.19 says. I love the way Matt read it just before the offering. He will again and again and again and again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Praise God for such a deliverance. Well, very quickly, Jesus demonstrates a surprising mercy. Look at the end of this story. It surprised us for several reasons. First of all, because as we look, see in verse 14, when word begins to spread, there's a response that is staggering to us. Look at the text again. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What? I mean, wouldn't you say, please move in? There's a lot more work that you could do here to make this community and city right. This is the one who's been healing <coughs> all kinds of disease and sickness, and now he's shown that he has power over darkness. So this this is one of those stunning moments where we say, why would, why would they beg Jesus to leave? It could be because they love their, and I'm not trying to be funny by saying this, it could be because they love the pig business and the prophets more than they love the ministry of a miracle-working king like Jesus. It could be that they actually love their superstition and pagan worship, even in forms of darkness, more than they want this new religion that Jesus is bringing in. Any number of reasons, but they actually beg Jesus to leave them, and he honors the request. That's the first little surprise in this. I know that doesn't seem to be a mercy of Jesus, but we'll get to that particular point in just a moment. So what they have seen and what they have heard is moving them to reject Jesus. But Jesus isn't done with them. The first thing that is clear to us in verse 15 is indicating this. He completely restores the man. Look at verse 15 and three little, three little phrases or words that describe the man. First of all, he's sitting. And remember just a few verses ago, he's being described as a wild man who just roamed the hillsides running in and out of the tombs and caves, the hillside, the mountainside. He wasn't a man who was seated and calm. He was a man perpetually in motion, crying out in agony, cutting himself perpetually. But now he's seated. And then Mark says he was clothed. Now, he hadn't told us explicitly beforehand that he was naked, but those other, Matthew and Luke, do record uh, some of those things. But now it's clear, because he is clothed at this moment, that he wasn't clothed prior to this. And whereas nakedness once characterized his life, he, he seems to be moving back into normal society. And then thirdly, he's in his right mind. 
no shrieks of agony, no cries of pain. He's been made whole. I wonder if you have considered what Jesus had to endure to make you whole. There's a beautiful passage back in Isaiah's prophecy that really begins in chapter 52, but I just want to read chapter 53. And I'm struck by this as I was meditating on this in the course of the week, that for, for Jesus to bring wholeness to our minds and to our hearts and to, to position us in a, in a place of peace where we might be seated and not in some kind of perpetual spiritual frenzy. And even for us to be clothed in spiritual uh, garments of righteousness as the scriptures describe for us. You know, Jesus had to be stripped of his clothing and shamed publicly. He was nailed to a cross and hung up for all to see in a place that was actually called the skull. That's what Calvary really means, or Golgotha really means, the place of a skull. And as he hung there dying, he endured the wrath of God, the very kind of wrath that will be poured out on demons and Satan and other workers of evil and iniquity for all eternity. Jesus bore that wrath upon himself and cried out of his agony one dark day, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Left derelict on the hillside of Calvary. Echoes of the demoniac in Genesar, but a much greater work and an eternally successful work. Isaiah tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that the discipline that was required for our peace fell on him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah also describes Jesus in this particular passage as despised and rejected by others. Sound familiar? And finally, one of the thoughts is that he made his grave with the wicked. And further down in this passage, he was numbered with the sinners and bore the sins of many. A day was coming where, spiritually speaking, Jesus would not only trade places with the demoniac, but would trade places with every one of us who has ever violated God's law, broken His commands, rebelled against Him, and rejected Him. It's a powerful story of healing. And this man sits now in the presence of Jesus completely healed, completely restored. The perfect picture of peace. And then he pleads to be included with Jesus and his disciples. And this is where, if you read the story, at least it strikes me in this way initially, I, I think to myself, oh, let the man go with you. Let, let him come. Oh, Jesus has something more significant. Look at verse 19. He did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He commissions this man for one of the first 
missionary invasions, if I can put it that way. This is the community that has just said to Jesus, depart from us. And Jesus says, I will. He gets in the boat, but in mercy, he says to this man, you go back and proclaim what I've done for you. So while Jesus is not present, his witness is present. And this man apparently did it, moves about, and do you see the response at the end of verse 20? Everyone marveled. They just can't get away from Jesus, even though they begged him, depart from us. Jesus sends his witness there. He continues to tell, this is what has happened. This is the mercy I've received. Remember what I used to be? And everybody would say, oh, we remember what it used to be. You scared the willies out of us day after day. But Jesus came and transformed him. What, is, what do the people of the Decapolis do with that? They listen, they watch, they pay attention. And I suspect to you, and I'm going back to Mark 4, remember the parable of the seed? The witness of, of Christ, whether it's his personally or people like us or a gospel message, a gospel conversation, a gospel track, it always bears fruit. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven one day and saying, who here was in the Decapolis? Who here actually begged Jesus to go away? But then you just couldn't get away from the witness of the healed demoniac. And in time, you said, we should have asked Jesus to stay, but we did it by faith. He is Lord and Savior. We came to know him by faith. Isn't that going to be a great conversation? That's why I'm saying it's a surprising mercy. If your neighbors came to you and said, you need to pack up and move, you wouldn't feel so good about that, would you? And if you moved, you'd probably say, good riddance, I don't want to see those people ever again. Jesus doesn't think that way. He doesn't even seem to take offense. He stays on mission. So that little floating armada that came through the storm, which may have had some demonic power behind it. Matt and I were talking a little about that this morning. Jesus stands and speaks peace, great calm, disciples fear. What manner of man is this? He says to them, where's your faith? Believe in me. He continues to show his power and, and on mission, moves into the unclean country and encounters the unclean man, heals him, delivers him, casts the demons out. They, they occupy the pigs. Pigs rush into the sea. There's this beautiful visual image of what it means that he casts all of our sins into the sea. This new man sits, clothed in his right mind, and he's commissioned, though he wants to be with Jesus. Jesus says, you're my witness. You get back into that community and tell him how you receive mercy. Is this not amazing? Now, some of you experience the mercy of God, and your witness right in this community is as strategic as this man's was then. So don't underestimate it. We've been saying over and over, we just need to talk about Jesus. And you can talk out of, out of the scriptures. You can take some of the gospel literature that we keep supplied on the back table. But again, you can just tell your story of what you have found in Jesus, what he's doing in you. And, and that brings him so much joy and honor personally. And it's powerful in our community. Final word before we pray. Some of you are still kind of on the front side of this story sharing more in common at this moment with the demoniac than any other character. And can I just say to you, there's hope in Jesus. There's mercy to be found in him. You may feel like your sins are way too many, that God would never have a place for you in his household, would not even want to see you or hear from you, but, but this story is the proof that Jesus not only wants to see you and, and hear from you, he comes to you. 
that he might show you mercy. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he is and for what he continues to do. And we believe his word. And we ask that you would take it deeper and deeper into our souls and grow a faith that is no longer small and weak and fearful, but grow a faith that stands in awe of this great King, this sovereign one, the Son of the Most High, who has only to speak a word and violent storms go still, who has to speak only a word and thousands of demons have to obey his specific command, who needs only speak a word and the years of torment and terror that individuals experienced are are wiped away and peace and calm and wholeness and mission come. So Father, speak to the one who right now feels so hopeless in their darkness. Let them see Jesus and just believe that He is who He says He is. And give them an experience of that kind of rescue and deliverance from all that oppresses them. May they know exactly what this man experienced so long ago. And then I pray for gospel hope. While we are an assembly, we are an assembly of people, individuals that you have strategically positioned in this community, scattered us across the valley, our various neighborhoods, our places of work, the schools that our our children attend, the grocery stores we shop at. And this week, there are going to be specific opportunities for us, like this man, to just tell people about the mercy that we've received. So let that mercy overwhelm our hearts anew. And may we be able to freely talk to others in a way that would be meaningful and helpful and, and attractive to them, drawing them to Jesus where we just describe the forgiveness that we've found, the grace that we've experienced, the joy that you have brought to our lives. Oh, Lord God, let this valley know the Son of the Most High God. So, Spirit of God, come now and empower us for that mission. And even as we sing in response to your word here in just a few minutes, make it so personal and real that our sins, though they are many, our mercy, your mercy is more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.